Chapter Thirty of Woman as Decoration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Vermalchem. Woman as Decoration by Emily Burbank. Chapter Thirty. Captions of the Fashion Plates. Plate One. Madame Geraldine Farrar as days in the opera of that name it is a sketch made from life for this book observe the gilded wig and richly embroidered gown they are after descriptions of a costume worn by the real days it is a greek type of costume but not the familiar classic greek of sculptured story days was a reigning beauty and acted in the theatre of alexandria in the early christian era Plate two, woman in ancient Egyptian sculpture relief about one thousand B.C. We have here a husband and wife, Metropolitan Museum. Plate three, a Greek face. Dionysiac scenes about four hundred and sixty B.C. Interesting costumes, Metropolitan Museum. Plate four, Greek kylix. Signed by Hieron, about 400 B.C., Athenian. The woman wears one of the gowns Fortuny, Paris, has reproduced as a modern tea-gown. It is in two pieces. The characteristic short tunic reaches just below waistline in front and hangs in long fine pleats, sometimes cascaded folds, under the arms, the end of which reach below knees. The material is not cut to form sleeves. Instead, Two oblong pieces of material are held together by small fastenings at short intervals, showing upper arm through intervening spaces. The resultant appearance is similar to a kimono sleeve. Metropolitan Museum Plate 5 Example of the pointed headdress, carefully concealed hair, in certain countries at certain periods of history, a sign of modesty. Round necklace and very long closed sleeves, characteristic of fourteenth and fifteenth centuries. Observe angle at which headdress is worn. Plate six, fifteenth century costume, virgin and child, and painted terracotta. It is by Andrea Verrocchio, and now a metropolitan museum. We have here an illustration of the costume so often shown on the person of the Virgin in the art of the Middle Ages. Plate 7. Fifteenth-century costumes on the holy women at the tomb of our Lord. The sculpture relief is enamel terracotta in white, blue, green, yellow, and manganese colors. It bears the date 1487. Note character of headdresses, arrangement of hair, capes, and gowns, which are early Renaissance. Metropolitan Museum Plate 8 Queen Elizabeth in the absurdly elaborate costume of the late Renaissance, then crinoline, gorgeous materials, and ornamentations without meaning, reached their high watermark in the costuming of women. Plate 9 A Velasquez portrait of the Renaissance, when the human form counted only as a rack, on which was heaped crinoline and stiff brocades, and chains and gems and wigs and every manner of elaborate adornment making mountains of poor tottering human forms 
all but lust beneath. Plate 10. An ideal example of the typical costume of fashionable England in the eighteenth century, when picturesqueness, not appropriateness, was the demand of the times. This picture is known as the morning promenade, Squire Hallett with his lady, painted by Thomas Gainsborough, and now in the private collection of Lord Rothschild, London. Plate 11. Marie-Antoinette in a portrait by Madame Vigée Lebrun, one of the greatest portrait painters of the eighteenth century. Here we see the lovely queen of Louis the sixteenth, in the type of costume she made her own, which is still referred to as the Marie-Antoinette style. This portrait is in the Musée National Versailles. Plate 12. The portrait of an Englishwoman painted during the Napoleonic period. She wears a typical empire gown, cloak, and bonnet. The original of this portrait is the same referred to elsewhere as having moistened her muslin gowns to make them cling to her in Grecian folds. Among her admiring friends was Lord Byron. A descendant, who allows the use of the charming portrait, explains that the fair lady insisted upon being painted in her bonnet because her curling looks were short, a result of typhoid fever. Plate 13. Portrait by Gilbert Stuart of Doña Matilda, Stoughton de Judines, Metropolitan Museum. We use this portrait to illustrate the period when woman's line was obliterated by the excessive decoration of her costume. The interest attached to this charming example of her time lies in colour and detail. It is as if the bewitching Doña Matilda were holding up her clothes with her person. Her outline is that of a ruffled canary. How difficult for her to forget her material trappings when they are so many, and yet she looks light of heart. For sharp contrast, we suggest that our reader turn at once to the portrait by Sargent, plate 15, which is distinguished for its clean-cut outline, and also the distinction arrived at through elimination of detail in the way of trimming. The costume hangs on the woman, suspended by jewelled chains from her shoulders. The sergeant has the simplicity of the classic Greek, the Gilbert Stuart portrait, the amusing fascination of Marie-Antoinette detail. The gown is white satin, with small gold flowers scattered over its surface. The headdress, surmounting the powdered hair, is of white satin with seed pearl ornaments. The background is a dead rose velvet curtain, draped to show blue sky, veiled by clouds. The same dead rose on table and chair covering. The book on table has a softly toned calf cover. Gilbert Stuart was fond of working in this particular colour note. Plate 14. Madame Adeline Junet, the greatest living exponent of the art of toe-dancing. She wears an early Victorian costume, 1840, made for a ballet she danced in London several seasons ago. The writer did not see the costume and neglected, until too late, to ask Madame Junet for a description of its colouring. But judging by what we know of 1840 colours and textures, as described by Miss McClellan, historic dress in America, and other historians of the period, as well as from portraits, we feel safe in stating 
that it may well have been a bonnet of pink uncut velvet, trimmed with silk fringe and a band of braided velvet of the same colour, or perhaps a white shirt satin, or duff-coloured satin with pale pink and green-figured ribbon. For the dress it may have been of duff-grey satin, or pink-flowered silk with a black taffeta cape, and one of black lace to change off with. Plate 15. A Portrait by John S. Sargent. Metropolitan Museum, painted about 1890. We have here a distinguished example of the dignity and beauty possible to costume characteristic of the period, when extreme severity, as to outline and elimination of detail, followed the elaboration of Victorian ruffles, ribbons and lace over hoops and bustle, curled hair and the obvious cameo brooch, massive bracelets and chains. Plate 16. A portrait of Mrs. Thomas Hastings of New York, painted by the late John W. Alexander. We have chosen this, one of the most successful portraits by one of America's leading portrait painters, as a striking example of color scheme and interesting line. Also, we have here a woman who carries herself with form. Mrs. Hastings is an accomplished horsewoman. Her fine physique is poised, so as to give that individual movement which makes for type. Her color, wonderful red hair, and the complexion which goes with it, are set off by a dull gold background, a gown in another tone of gold, relieved by a note or two of turquoise green, and the same green appearing as a shadow on the victory in the background. We see the sitter, as she impressed an observer, transferred to the canvas by the consummate skill of our deeply lamented artist. Plate 17. Portrait of Mrs. Philip M. Liddick, patron of the arts, exhibited in New York at Devine Galleries during winter of 1916-1917 with the Zilogger pictures. The exhibition was arranged by Mrs. Liddick. This portrait has been chosen to illustrate two points, that a distinguished decorative quality is dependent upon line which has primarily to do with form of one's own physique, and not alone the cut of the costume, and the great value of knowing one's own type. Mrs. Liddick has been transferred to the canvas by the clever technique of one of the greatest modern painters, Ignacia Zuloga, an artistic descendant of Velasquez. The delightful movement is it that of the subject, in this case kept to life, through its subtle translation into terms of art. Plate 18. Mrs. Langtry, Lady de Bath, who has been one of the greatest beauties of modern times and a marked example of a woman who has always understood her own type to costume it. She agrees that this photograph of her, in an evening wrap, illustrates a point she has always laid emphasis on, that a garment, which has good lines, in which one is a picture, continues wearable even when not the dernier cri of fashion. This wrap was worn by Mrs. Langtry about two years ago. Plate 19. Mrs. Comde Nast, artist and patron of the arts, noted for understanding of her own type and the successful costuming of it. Mrs. Nast was Miss Clarisse Coderre. Her French blood accounts, in part, for her innate feeling for line and colour, it is largely due to the keen interest and active services of Mrs. Nast 
that Vogue and Vanity Fair have become the popular mirrors and prophetic crystal balls of fashion for the American woman. Mrs. Nas is here shown in street costume. The photograph is by Baron de Meyer, who has made a distinguished art of photography. We are here shown the value of a carefully considered outline, which is sharply registered on the background by posing figure against the light, a method for suppressing all details, not affecting the outline. Plate 20. Mrs. Condenast in the evening gown. Here again is a costume, the beauty of which evades the dictum of fashion in the narrow sense of the term. This picture has the distinction of a well-posed and finely executed old master, and because possessing beauty of a traditional sort, will continue to give pleasure long after the costume has perished. Play 21. Mrs. Condé Nast, in a garden costume. She wears a sun-hat, and carries a flower-basket, which are decorative as well as useful. We have chosen this photograph as an example of a costume made exquisitely artistic, by being kept simple in line and free from an excess of trimming. This costume is so decorative that it gives distinction and interest to the least pretentious of gardens. Plate 22. Mrs. Condé Nast, wearing one of the famous Fortuniti gowns. This one has no tunic, but is finely pleated in the Fortuny manner, and falls in long lines closely following the figure to the floor. Observe the decorative value of the long string of beads. Plate 23. Mrs. Vernon Carter, who set today's fashion in outline of costume and short hair for the young woman of America. For this reason, and because Mrs. Carter has formed a superlative degree, correct carriage of the body, and the clothes sense, knowledge of what she can wear and how to wear it, we have selected her to illustrate several types of costumes characteristic of 1916 and 1917. Another reason for asking Mrs. Castle to illustrate our text is that what Mrs. Castle's professional dancing has done to develop and perfect her natural instinct for line, the normal exercise of going about one's tasks and diversions, can do for any young woman, provided she keep in mind correct carriage of body when in action or repose. Here we see Mrs. Castle in ball costume. Plate 24 Mrs. Vernon Castle in winter afternoon costume, one which is so suited to her type, and at the same time conservative as to outline and detail, that it would have charm whether in style or not. Plate 25. Mrs. Vernon Castle in a summer afternoon costume appropriate for city or country, and so adapted to the wearer's type that she is a picture, whether in action, seated on her own porch, and having tea at a country club, or in the winter sun parlour. Play 26. Mrs. Vernon Castle, costumed à la guerre, for a walk in the country. The cap is after one worn by her aviator husband. This is one of the costumes, there are many, being worn by women, engaged in war work, under the head of messengers, chauffeurs, etc. The shoes are most decidedly not for service, but they will be replaced when the time is at hand for others of stout leather with heavy soles and flat heels. Plate 27. 
Mrs. Vernon Castle in one of her dancing costumes. She was snapped by the camera as she sprang into a pose of mere joyous abandon at the conclusion of a long series of more or less exacting poses. Mrs. Castle assures us that to repeat the effect produced here, in which camera, lucky chance and favorable wind combined, would be well-nigh impossible. Plate 28. A skating costume worn by Miss Weld of Boston, holder of the Women's Figure Skating Championship. This photograph was taken in New York on March 23, 1917, when amateurs contested for the cup and Miss Weld won, this time over the men. The costume of wine-colored velvet trimmed with small skin, a small close talk to match, was one of the most appropriate and attractive models of 1916-1917. Plate 29. One of the 1917 silhouettes. Naturally, since woman today dresses for her occupation, work or play, the characteristic silhouettes are many. This one is reproduced to illustrate our point that outline can be affected by the smallest detail. The sketch is by Elizabeth Searcy. Plate 30 Souvenirs of an artist design his unique establishment in spirit and accomplishment vraie parisienne. Notice the long cape in the style of 1825. Tapé himself will tell you that all periods have had their beautiful lines and colors, their interesting details, that to find beauty one must first have the feeling for it, that if one is not born with this subtle instinct, there are manifold opportunities for cultivating it. His claim is the same as that we made in our art of interior decoration. The connoisseur is one who has passed through the schooling to be acquired only by contact with masterpieces, those treasures sifted by time and preserved for our education in great art collections. Tapé emphasizes the necessity of knowing the background for a costume before planning it, the value of line in the physique beneath the materials, the interest to be woven into a woman's costume when her type is recognized, and the modern insistence on appropriateness, that is, the simple gown and close hat for the car, vivid colors for field sports or beach, a large fan for the woman who is mistress of sweeping lines, etc., etc. Tubby is absolutely French in his insistence upon the possible eloquence of line, a single flower well poised, and the chic which is dependent upon how a head or gown is put on. We have heard him say, No, I will not claim the head in that photograph, though I made it, because it is mal posé. Plate 31. Costume of a Red Cross nurse, worn while working in a French war hospital by Miss Elsie de Wolf of New York. An example of woman costumed so as to be most efficient for the work in hand. Miss de Wolf's name has become synonymous with interior decoration throughout the length and breadth of our land, but she established a reputation as one of the best-dressed women of America long before she left the stage to professionally decorate homes. She has done an immeasurable amount toward moulding the good taste of America in several fields. At present, her energies are in part devoted to disseminating information concerning a cure for burns, one of the many discoveries resulting from the exigencies of the present devastating war. 
Plate thirty two Madame Geraldine Farrar as Carmen. In each of the three presentations of Madame Farrar, we have given her in character as suggestions for stage costumes or costume balls by courtesy of Vanity Fair. Plate thirty three Madame Geraldine Farrar. The Valley of Line was admirably illustrated in the opera Madame Butterfly seen this winter at the Metropolitan Opera House. Have you chanced to ask yourself why the outline of the individual members of the chorus was so lacking in charm, and Madame Ferrat so delightful? The great point is that in putting on her kimono, Madame Ferrat kept in mind the characteristic silhouette of the Japanese woman, as shown in Japanese art. Then she made a picture of herself, and one in harmony with her Japanese setting which brings us back to the keynote of our book, Woman as Decoration, Beautiful Line. End of chapter 30 End of Woman as Decoration by Emily Burbank